0: When we initially released Ken Middleton's episode in March 2022, we were hoping that Jackson County District Attorney Gene Peters Baker would be moved to action. But it turns out, it looks like Ken's son Cliff Middleton has exposed another conflict of interest for the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office, and this one comes with a constitutional violation. When the trial prosecutor struck a bond agreement with the court for Mr. Middleton, there was a stipulation that he would not have access to his assets. This was a clear violation of his Sixth Amendment rights as affirmed in 2016 by the Supreme Court who decided in Luis v. United States that the Sixth Amendment prohibits the pretrial restraint of assets needed to retain a defendant's counsel of choice when those assets have not been used in conjunction with criminal activity. Mr. Middleton is hoping that the court agrees that the actions of the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office to do just that to Mr. Middleton pretrial represented a conflict of interest that will disqualify that office and result in the appointment of a special prosecutor. A prosecutor who is free of this conflict, among others, would be able to apply the newly enacted SB 53 in order to grant Mr. Middleton a new trial on his ineffective assistance of counsel, constitutional violations, and actual innocence claims. Ken and Kathy Middleton had properties in Blue Springs, Missouri, as well as Ken's family land back in Arkansas, where they hoped to one day retire. On February 12, 1990, when he planned to clean a gun that he had brought back from Arkansas, Ken felt ill, laid the gun down, and took a nap. Meanwhile, Kathy returned early from work to confront Ken about news of a regretful affair that had ended three years earlier. After grabbing the gun from where Ken had laid it down, Kathy made her way to the phone to call the alleged mistress when tragedy struck. It is believed that a distraught Kathy mishandled the weapon in her left hand and shot herself in the head. Ken immediately called 911, When first responders found him without a drop of blood or gunshot residue on him. A positive gunshot residue test of Kathy's left hand would have conclusively ruled her death as a tragic accident. However, her left hand test results went missing. And the crime lab document was altered in what clearly appears to be evidence tampering. With a medical examiner and blood spatter expert willing to testify to an impossible scenario in which Ken was magically able to shoot Kathy from less than a foot away while remaining free of blood and GSR, Ken was sentenced to life plus 200 years. Despite the mishandling of the crime scene, ballistics testing was still able to prove Ken's innocence. His conviction was overturned in 2004, but a jurisdictional technicality has held him in legal limbo ever since. Ken and his son Cliff Middleton join us to ask, "How is it that even though a new statute remedies that technicality, the current prosecutor Jean Peters Baker refuses to act?" This is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your host, Jason Flom. You know, each week I have a pretty good idea of how I'm going to start the show. You know, usually there's one main focus, one main problem that we can talk about in any particular case. But this time, I don't even know where to start. When our friend Larry Garrison, who's aptly known as the Newsbreaker... Okay, for his years of investigative reporting and his work through Silver Creek Entertainment. When he first told me and us here at Wrongful Conviction about the case of Ken Middleton, he had lived up to his nickname once again. I mean, the newsbreaker. So I'll start by saying that Ken Middleton has been in prison for over 30 years for being present during what they may well have known all along, was just a tragic accident. And there are so many problems in this case that we could literally pick on any one of them and make an entire episode of the show just about that. I'm talking about ineffective assistance of counsel, false expert testimony, evidence tampering, incompetent investigators, official corruption, conflicts of interest, Ken refusing freedom through an Alford plea, right? Something that you'd never catch a guilty person doing. And that's something that happened 17 years ago. Almost 18 now. Plus, there's this insane jurisdictional technicality that has kept this innocent man in prison long past the time that I believe everyone knows that he should have ever been in there. So, without further ado, at 77 years old, Ken is calling in from inside the prison walls in Missouri. Ken, I'm so sorry you're here because of the reason why you're here, but I'm very honored to have you on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. And... With Ken is his son and probably most passionate advocate, Cliff Middleton, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me on, Jason. I really, really appreciate it.
0: And I know how hard this is gonna be. I mean, like any other son, you love your dad and you just want this thing to end. Okay, let's go back in time. And I'm gonna turn to you, Ken. This is early 1990 in Blue Springs, Missouri. And you're there with your wife, Kathy. So tell us what was happening in your life. What were things like before all this happened?
4: It was great. We had a great marriage for over 16 years. Had a farm in Arkansas, two different farms. I had 352 acres of land. I had drove a truck for over 20 years, and I'd injured my back, and I wasn't working right then. So I was going to the farm and doing projects, working on the house and watching after the cattle and stuff like that. Kathy worked at AT&T for uh, 28 years. And two years, she'd have her time in where she could retire regardless of age. And that's what was waiting on and was moving back to Arkansas for good.
0: And let's get into how this came to pass. So let's go back to February 12th, 1990. And just to set the stage here, you had been at your place in Arkansas and you brought a handgun that you owned, back to Missouri with you. But meanwhile, you had been feeling sick. But no one knew at the time, not you or anybody, that you were really seriously ill at this point. Is that right?
4: Right, and I was sick before I left Arkansas. And when I got back Sunday afternoon, I didn't sleep much all night. So the next morning, Kathy had went to work at AT&T and I unloaded the rest of my truck and brought the gun in the house. It had been in Arkansas since I'd went to Colorado Elk Hunt in the fall before. And there's was big snow and rain and stuff in Colorado, and it got wet. So I picked it up and brought it back to Missouri. I was to clean it, and when I got it out of the truck, I went in the house and sat down. I called Kathy at work, and she asked me how I was feeling. I said about the same. I wasn't feeling good. And I was sitting in a recliner, and I would went to sleep, and I'd never cleaned the gun. So the next thing I knew is she was already home, and she'd picked up the gun out of the towel that had had the gun laying on, and she was upset that somebody had told her that I was having an affair with a woman, which was true, but it had been over for three years, and she walked over to the phone in the dining room to call the woman. So I got up, and I was dizzy, and next thing I know, the tragedy had happened.
0: And the tragedy that had happened is the matter of this dispute between the Middletons and the state. Now, Ken maintained his innocence in the matter that this was a tragic accident in which Kathy, visibly upset about the news of this affair, and on her way to the phone to confront your alleged mistress, Kathy was holding the gun in her left hand and accidentally shot herself on the left side of her forehead, splattering blood all over the wall. This version of events is supported by the ballistics and all the other physical evidence. And then there's what the state wants everyone to believe, right? Bear with me, because this is nuts, that Ken had somehow held Kathy up against the wall and shot her in the face, but somehow miraculously was able to be completely clear of blood spatter or gunshot residue, not a trace on him. And we'll get into all of that a bit later. So back to this terrible tragedy A gunshot rang out, and Kathy was on the floor in a pool of blood. What a nightmare. Ken, what happened next?
4: I'd seen her on the floor and grabbed the gun and put it on the table and called 911 immediately. I asked for the paramedics, and I'd called them three times within a short period of time, wanting to know where the paramedics was. And the third time, the operator told me to go outside, that the paramedics were there. And I looked out and I told her that I'd looked out and there wasn't nobody out there. And she convinced me to go outside that they were there. So I went out and the first thing I seen was a cop behind the wall screaming at me to get my hands in the air and turn around with my back to him, I had his gun pointed at me. And I done as he said, and he'd come up behind me and search me uh, wanting to know who the paramedics were. And he ordered me back in the house and we went back in the house, and he went in and checked on my wife, and I was just hysterical, and I guess I was down on my knees, and he jerked me up, and when he'd done that fast, I'd become dizzy, real dizzy, and I thought I was black blackout, so I said I was gonna be sick, and I went down the hall to the bathroom, and I went in and splashed water on my face, and then he took me outside, and I had a real bad hurting in my left arm and chest,
0: now, when the paramedics arrived, they determined, Ken, that you had been hyperventilating, complaining of chest pains, and your blood pressure was going crazy, and they convinced you to go to the hospital for an examination. They
4: taught me to go into the hospital, and they took me to three medical hospitals, and then on the third one, I was forced in a mental hospital till the next day.
0: They later tried to say that you had checked into that mental hospital to try to get away with murder claimed, by claiming insanity defense, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. And let's not leave out the fact that your dad was in and out of consciousness on his way to the hospital and they took an EKG at the hospital and it showed that, Ken, that you had recently suffered from a heart attack. Now, here's another thing that I have trouble understanding or processing The officers didn't write their statements until days later, and they did it Mm -hmm. by memory, right? And these statements that were taken from a hysterical man who had to be rushed to the hospital, talking about you, of course, Ken, who was just trying to help figure out what happened. So the officers didn't bother to write it down.
3: There were a couple police reports that were handwritten out that day, but the official reports that I have reviewed were written on I believe it was February 21st, and Kathy died on the 12th.
0: Now, in researching this case, I saw in the police reports where they kept on documenting instances in which Ken allegedly had done something with his hands, like he mentioned, splashing water on his face, right? They wrote down another instance where they said he wiped his hands on a door, touched dirt in a potted plant, and the implication is that Ken was trying to somehow wash away the gunshot residue.
3: There's a picture the Independence News Examiner paper took of my father out there on the front stoop, leaning over that potter plant, sobbing and the two paramedics are consoling him. It's it's very obvious that he was in a state of shock and hysteria. First of all, you already claimed he was washing his hands when he splashed water on his face. It's crazy to think that somebody's trying to wash their hands in the dirt. Unless you've been involved in something like this, how would you even know what a gunshot residue test is? Especially in 1990, Jason. Maybe today with crime shows and things, but he didn't know what they were testing him for.
4: They took my shirt, undershirt, and clothes and shoes and all, and they did test it, and it come back negative—no blood or nothing on my long-sleeve shirt. And that picture in the front high of the house, when I was over at the stoop, shows the long-sleeve shirt down to my wrist. There was no blood, no gunshot residue on it.
0: Right. And as the evidence clearly shows, she was shot from very close range, less than a foot away. And there's no way you can do that without being covered in blood and gunshot residue. But you weren't because you didn't kill her. And Kathy's gunshot residue tests would likely have corroborated Ken's version of events and shown that this was a tragic accident, not a homicide. Cliff, can you explain what I mean by that? They swabbed
3: both of her hands that day for gunshot residue. And the crime document that they fill out shows that they swabbed both hands, right and left hands, and it shows they used two different kits to do that, one for the right hand and one for the left hand. Well, the next day when the coroner did the autopsy, the coroner ruled it a homicide based on what the police were telling him unless other information come forward to prove otherwise. Now that gunshot residue was important information and took them nine days to turn the gunshot residue samples into the crime lab. And when they turned them into the crime lab, the document was altered to show only one kit And the left hand was whited out to show they only tested the right hand when she was shot from 8 to 12 inches away on the left side of her head.
0: You really have to see this to believe it. And we're going to link pictures of this in our episode bio because I'm looking at it right now, and I still can't believe that I'm actually looking at what I'm looking at. Okay, so the test of Kathy's left hand the one in which she would have held the gun in order to shoot herself, the test of that hand disappeared. Or it wasn't tested on purpose. There's only two possibilities. The crime lab document that should have been for both of her hands was altered with whiteout. Okay, remember whiteout? It's unreal. This is like to show that only her right hand had been tested. And this is reinforced when you compare it with the GSR test document for Ken in the same handwriting. Okay, get ready for this. It states, quote, number of articles two GSR test kits for right and left hands, end quote. But then on Kathy's GSR test document, in the same exact handwriting, it says, quote, number of articles. And whatever was there is whited out. Right? Just whited out. And the number one is in its place. And then it reads, quote, gunshot residue for right, end quote, followed by another gob of whiteout and the word hand. So in all likelihood, the whiteout is simply covering the words and left, as it would have been in a request for testing of both right and left hands, where now only one test for her right hand exists. And the one that really matters, the left hand. Is missing.
4: Later on, after I was convicted, years later, we took their deposition, and Jeff Rogers, that wrote the report out, he swore that he didn't put the white out on that because it's on green paper, and he said that he wouldn't have whited it out; he'd have just filled out a new report. And we got Dave Link, the one that took it to the lab nine days later. He swore up and down that he didn't do it. And he was asked, did he always take both hands of a close gunshot residue test? He said, yes. My attorney asked him years later in 97, always, and he said, absolutely.
0: They whited out the left hand, and they whited out the number of articles. I mean, somebody literally just took white out.
3: Yeah, the left hand, if it would have come back positive, it would have been powerful evidence that she accidentally fired the gun herself. Our attorney told us that if that left hand come back positive, the coroner would have changed his findings and they wouldn't have had a case against my father. It all would have ended right there.
0: This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Now this is a small town police department. My understanding is there hadn't been a homicide investigation in almost a decade. These people were not up to the task and they started making mistakes more or less as soon as they walked into the house.
3: Yes, yes. And like so many other cases, I believe the police immediately focused on my father and had tunnel vision as they began to investigate this case. I'll start with the fact that they took photos that day of the alleged crime scene and the photos allegedly did not come out. And after Kathy's body was removed, they went back and restaged the crime scene and took new photos. By the time they'd done this, my stepmother had already been taken out of the house, and the fire department had actually been called in to cut sheetrock out of the wall with uh, blood spatter and things, and so the new pictures they took, the sheetrock was already cut out, and they had drawn a diagram of the dining room where this happened. And the diagram didn't match the pictures. They had moved the dining room table all the way up against the wall to make it appear that there was a bigger area
0: there when she was shot. Right, to make room for this alleged struggle that never even happened when she went to use the phone. In every picture they took
3: of this small dining room, they missed that phone, Jason, by a quarter of an inch. Another mistake that was made that day at the crime scene. According to the police reports, they unclothed my stepmother naked right there on the dining room floor and folded her clothes up and put them in bags and transported her to the morgue naked. For them to unclothe her and alter any evidence that could have been gathered from that now, that goes against every protocol of any police department, anywhere.
4: Best I remember, the medical examiner said she'd come in fully clothed. So what they actually done was reclothed her before... The medical examiner examined
3: her. That's exactly right. What the medical examiner reported didn't match the police reports. They unclothed her and at some point reclothed her.
0: So they mishandled the scene and the evidence, altered or disappeared the key gunshot residue test of Kathy's left hand, and then they arrested you and eventually you got out on bond. And even that was kind of odd. Right.
4: Prosecutor Peters agreed to 10000 and he put a restriction on my bond that says not to dispose of any marital or jointly held property without the permission of the prosecuting attorney and the probate court.
3: You got the state of Missouri coming after you with unlimited resources, and your life and liberty is on the line. My dad should have had access to every dime he
0: had to save his life. Right. And this also gets us to a crazy part of this whole story. So while you're facing Prosecutor Patrick Peters in this criminal trial against you, there's also a wrongful death civil suit filed against you by Kathy's sisters. And get this, Prosecutor Peters' father is part of the law firm behind that civil suit. So stands to benefit from the outcome. And of course, you didn't even know that at the time.
4: They had concealed it, and they had said that he had convinced them that he would convict me, and the law firm would help keep me in prison.
3: I'd like to point out that the Blue Springs Police Department city attorney for Blue Springs was also in the same law firm as the prosecutor's father. So you had a triangle of a conflict of interest here that was hidden from from everyone.
0: Every time we do an episode, I always think I've heard it all. I could say even after doing 250 episodes of this show, I've never heard of that. The prosecutor refers the family of the woman who died, to his own father's law firm. Now everybody's compromised, right? Because now there's a whole nother motive for them to want to convict you of this crime so that everybody can make money.
3: And they ultimately got a $1.35 million default wrongful death judgment against my father.
0: So now there's been this litany of errors, misconduct, malfeasance, Straight up insanity. I'm going to call it what it is. It's insanity. And now, finally, it's time for the trial. It's February 1991, a year after the incident.
3: Basically, the crux of the state's case against my dad was that he held her up against the wall and shot her from a foot away from her face.
4: The prosecutor put on his so-called experts saying that she was two inches away from the wall and that I had my arm across her chest and held her up against the wall and shot her. And blood experts admitted that he had a week's training and he self-taught.
0: He
3: had taken a 40-hour course on blood spatter evidence. That's
0: all the training that their expert had. These quote-unquote experts have a 40-hour training course that doesn't actually teach you anything except how to act like you know what you're talking about in court pretty much, right?
4: But he didn't tell that there was no gunshot residue on my hands or long sleeve shirt or blood or nothing else on my long sleeve shirt.
3: And they said he put a boot print on the wall, which was false. It had been there weeks prior. And in order for that boot print to get there, his leg would have had to have bent backwards at the knee and hyperextended in order to put that boot print there.
0: Right, you have this bootprint that was physically impossible to have been made in this scenario, but you know what? None of it freaking matters. Why? They could have produced any other made-up nonsense to try to support their theory, but without Ken being covered in blood and GSR, it's all pure drivel. Blood and GSR has to be present for us to even entertain these bullshit footprints, not to mention the analysis from Bob Tressel, the renowned forensic crime investigator that further clarifies just how bogus the state's theory was. We'll get into all of that a bit later. But unfortunately, Ken didn't benefit from Bob Tressel's testimony or any of this being pointed out at the original trial. Ken's attorney, Bob Duncan, couldn't be bothered to do an investigation, not even a thorough examination of the gun. Cliff, what else did the state present?
3: They also put on evidence that... The gun would take 10 pounds of pressure, I believe it was, without the hammer pulled, three and a half pounds with the hammer pulled. Well, the gun needed to be examined in the exact state it was found in, and it wasn't. They had dismantled it and put it back together before testing it. So if there was any problems with the gun, they fixed it when they put it back together. Bob Duncan was asleep at the will, if you will, and had none of the physical evidence examined by an expert and hadn't interviewed any witnesses. He was totally unprepared for the case to even go to trial. Did I hear this correctly, that he didn't even make an opening statement? He reserved one and he forgot to give it.
4: I couldn't get him to do nothing. They didn't see nothing about the gunshot residue. Not one word of them whitening that document
3: out. They never seen it. Without a proper defense, you're at their mercy.
4: Years later, in 95 and 96, he gave me uh, three affidavits of what he had failed to do. This is my trial attorney, Robert Duncan. I did not have any physical evidence in the case examined by a forensic expert other than to speak to a gun expert about the gun, but I did not have him examine the gun. And then he gave another affidavit, and he said, Father, I believe my ability to defend Mr. Middleton was impaired because I wasn't given information of the connection between the police department, the prosecutor, and... The civil claims against Mr. Middleton seeking a substantial monetary recovery. This information, if for no other purpose, would have been admissible as impeachment evidence showing the bias of the police and some of the witnesses.
0: So Kathy's sister, Mildred Anderson, gave false testimony for the prosecution to show motive that Ken had secret assets in Arkansas that no one in the family was aware of. And we know this is just another lie because Mildred Anderson later said she admitted that she and the rest of the family actually did know about all of the assets before Kathy's death, which is a clear-cut example of perjury.
4: Which, in Missouri, in a murder case, that's a Class A felony. In fact, Peters colluded with her because Peters put it in the question where it'd be simple for her. Says, Quote, quite a bit of holdings down in Arkansas that you and your family, including your sister, were unaware of. She says, Yes.
3: It should also be mentioned, Jason, that after the sister testified to that, the prosecutor instructed the police department to release $18,700 worth of jewelry that was confiscated out of the house to the witness. So not only was it perjury, she was rewarded with $18,700 worth of jewelry.
4: Then eight years later, on March the 25th of 99, Mildred Anderson gave sworn testimony in her Arkansas lawsuit against Kenneth Middleton, which shows she clearly perjured herself in 1991. And her sister corroborated it.
0: Wow. Okay. So I got to ask about what must have been the worst day of all of your life, which, of course, is the day that the jury went out for a freaking hour and came back in and sentenced you to life without parole plus 200 years.
4: Well, I don't know how to describe it, but I was in shock. And until this happened, I never spent a day in jail in my life and take you from Being free in the country and working all my life to toying you in a cage is unbelievable. I can't explain.
3: Growing up as a kid, I would have never in a million years dreamed that what happened to my dad would have happened to him. He just was, you know, a great father, he's been more of a father to me behind bars than most kids could ask for from a father on the street and uh, it was devastating to our whole family.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host,
0: so now we move to the post conviction and there's still more insanity to come so it's 1992 and your appellate attorney is a man named gerald handley who was recommended by bob duncan well that's not a good sign and one of the first things we come to is the what's called the 2915 appeal cliff can you explain that to us and get us started here
3: After trial, the first appeal that you have in the state of Missouri is your post-conviction 2915. 2915 is an appeal that's filed back in front of the trial judge to evaluate your trial to make sure that you had a fair trial. That's where you bring your ineffective assistance of counsel issues if you have any. So you have 90 days to do that in Missouri or you don't get that hearing on ineffective assistance of counsel. And that's right back in front of the very trial judge that just sat on your trial and convicted you. So you got a high burden to meet there, right? You got to prove that you had an unfair trial and your attorney didn't do his job. Our appellate attorney at that time had a 90-day window to file an amended petition for dad and get all of his issues in the appeal. He never met with my dad, never went over any of the issues, which the law requires him to do, and at the last minute before the 90 days was up and you could get no extensions, my dad gets a letter from his attorney telling him to sign this affidavit that all of his issues are in the amended petition, even though my dad had never seen the petition. And if you didn't sign that affidavit and have it with your amended petition when you filed it, you were out. You couldn't even get a twenty nine fifteen hearing. So my dad had to sign it and at least hope that his attorney was going to put all of his issues in it. Well, we had to do a lot of finagling to get that affidavit to him before Monday. And when we got it to him on Monday, Gerald Hanley filed a three-page motion on my dad's life, procedurally defaulting all of his issues on appeal. So because that attorney procedurally defaulted all of his issues, the facts and the merits of his case were never heard.
4: And when we went to the evidentiary hearing, I had nine witnesses out in the hallway when I got to the courthouse. The witnesses that knew Pat Peters through trial seen Pat Peters talking to the uniform guard and the guard took a post at the door, and wouldn't let none of my witnesses in the courtroom. I didn't know what happened to him till I got back to the jail and made some calls. Peters called Duncan to the stand, And Duncan testified, just basically answering Peter's question, said, I checked myself into the hospital. Well, I was shaking my head. It was a lie because I was forced in that mental hospital.
3: One of the records that Bob Duncan didn't get was the medical records from the mental ward. The prosecution's theory was... That it was trial strategy for Duncan to not get the medical records because the prosecution had a witness that would have said, dad told him, if you want to get away with murder, you check yourself into a mental ward after you do it. So Judge Messina agreed and said, yeah, that's not ineffective assistance of counsel. He he didn't get them records because he voluntarily checked himself into a mental ward. Well, that wasn't true, but Gerald Hanley
0: never got the records either. So the judge never knew this. And so the hearing ended and no witnesses were called. No expert testimony was given and no evidence was presented to refute the state. Gerald Hanley ended up being, and this is, hard to believe, but he ended up being just as disinterested as Bob Duncan was before. And so predictably, Judge Messina rejected your 2915 appeal. It's insane. It's not because the appeal wasn't valid. It's because the lawyers didn't do their freaking jobs. And according to the law at that time, the trial court's jurisdiction over your case ended. So Cliff, eventually you all get a new attorney, Jonathan Lawrence, and there's a new law that gave you and your dad some hope or maybe false hopes but some positive things came about nonetheless. So can you tell us what happened next? In 2001, a law come down that
3: gave courts the opportunity to reevaluate cases. If you could prove your 2915 attorney, Gerald Hanley, abandoned you on your 2915, the trial courts could look at your case again. So my dad had done all this research on this and had done everything. And we took it to Jonathan Lawrence and Jonathan Lawrence at first didn't think we could do it. But once he read the case law, he said, yeah, I believe we can. So Jonathan Lawrence got involved and filed a 81 page motion and convinced Judge Messina, who denied us back in 92, to reopen my father's case. And she held a two day evidentiary
0: hearing in 2004. And you finally have an attorney here who can do justice in your father's case, who gathered and presented some powerful expert testimony, including from investigator Chuck Gay, who had been at the courthouse for the 1992 hearing, but had been prevented from entering the courtroom. Now he finally had a chance to speak. Chuck Gay was a 25-year police
3: officer in Long Beach, California. He had actually talked to the FBI in different courses on crime scene investigation, and he testified to The crime scene photos not coming out. You can't restage a crime scene. That's absurd. Unclothing her at the scene. All of these things, crime scene preservation is what Chuck Gay testified to and how improper it was. The gunshot residue was a real big one with him. We found out a little more about the green document. See, you have to realize before trial when they give us that green document it was just a copy so it was on white paper we really didn't know what it said underneath but we knew something was wrong because the left hand was missing and when our investigator after the trial went to go investigate that the crime lab said we didn't do that they said these are our documents we use green so they were pointing the finger at the police. They knew that that wasn't right. There was no initials or anything that would indicate who did it or, or why they did it. Myself and our attorney in 2016 went to the crime lab and, and got this document and him and I both held it up to the light and you could see underneath the whiteout on the number of articles, and then underneath the other whiteout off to the side, you could see the word left. And he gave us an affidavit that that was the worst alteration of official documents he had ever seen in 32 years, I believe, of practicing law.
0: And you also had testimony from a ballistics expert proving that the scenario presented by the state was physically impossible. And- this guy was no slouch. He had overseen over 800 investigations, and importantly, he had been an expert for both prosecution and defense. And of course, the guy I'm referring to is Bob Tressel.
5: I'm Bob Tressel. I'm a forensic crime scene investigator. When I first looked at the case, the bullet was found across the room after it had struck the door frame, ricocheted up to the ceiling, and over to on the other side of the dining room. So we began looking at the angles that the bullet took in striking the doorframe, exiting the doorframe. Their lab came up with what we call a muzzle to target, or the barrel of the weapon having to be approximately eight inches from her face where the bullet entered. So then we start looking at the gun. The gun's a 357 Magnum. You get the length of the barrel chamber and the grip area. So although the barrel's eight inches from her face, the gun is almost 14 inches in total length away from her face. And then we started looking at the wounds themselves. Pretty well a straight shot gunshot wound with little deviation on the upward or downward plane. And with the bullet not deviating very much right or left, the the shot had to come from directly in front of her. The upper trajectory, because we know where it strikes on the wall and then ricochets off, we know it's going upward. So she has to have her upper body bent over or her head bent over towards the table in order to receive that gunshot wound. And there's only about two feet distance between the table and the wall. And so you've got to get two people almost directly in front of each other, but the guns got to be held way down low. and. In order to get the distances that we saw, the gun has got to be almost on top of the table. So where can the shooter be at that point? When we finally did all the calculations, in order for someone to be directly in front of her, if a shooter was the one that fired this weapon, he would have to be under the table. That makes no sense whatsoever. There's no direct forensic evidence, either by blood, tissue, Gunshot residue, things of that nature that indicate that Middleton fired this gun,
0: killing his wife. And so all of this powerful expert testimony has been heard. And to top it all off, there was one more witness that testified on your father's behalf, the former governor of Missouri. Yes, you heard that correctly. The former governor of Missouri, Joseph P. Teasdale, testified on Ken's behalf. And he had extensive trial experience as an assistant U.S. attorney attorney prosecuting attorney and as a trial lawyer. And he testified to the, quote, suspect conduct of the prosecutors and the, quote, ineffective performance of the defense counsel. And at the end of the testimony, former Governor Teasdale was asked what he would have done if this case had been presented to him in his capacity as governor. And he replied that this was the worst case of constitutional violations that he had ever witnessed in 41 years of practicing law. And that he, and this is a direct quote, would clearly have pardoned Mr. Middleton of all wrongdoing, end quote. That's a strong statement.
3: He had gotten familiar with dad's case a few years before, and I reached out to him when we got this evidentiary hearing, and I asked him what his cost would be for him to come testify, and and he said, I don't want any money. I want a steak dinner when your dad gets
0: out of there. And it meant a lot to me. So finally, this information that you've been trying to get heard for so many years, the ineffective counsel, the prosecutorial misconduct and conflicts of interest, the botched investigation and altered reports, you're finally able to get that before the judge. And even a more conservative judge, Judge Messina, could not deny the merits of Ken's case.
3: So this was all powerful evidence that the jury never heard. After all this evidence was put forward, Judge Messina took it under advisement and would not rule on the case for 11 more months. Two weeks after the hearing was over, the prosecutors come to my dad with an Alford plea. If he would plead to an Alford plea and plead guilty to second degree, he could walk out of prison a free man. But even though all of his appeals were exhausted and we were sitting in front of a very conservative judge, my father refused the Alford plea. For him to turn that down with all appeals exhausted, that speaks volumes to his innocence.
0: And on May 25th, 2005, Judge Messina came back and vacated Ken's 1991 conviction and granted him a new trial. So the same judge who denied him in 1992 overturned his conviction.
3: Judge Messina found eight different points of ineffective assistance of counsel on Bob Duncan. The man had three other capital murder cases overturned.
0: At the same time he was handling my dad's case. But just six days after this incredible news, you get a huge punch to the gut. What does the Jackson County
3: Prosecutor's Office do? They appeal the decision. So if he would plead guilty after that hearing, they were willing to let him go. But when he stood by his innocence and the trial judge agreed and overturned his conviction, they appealed it. They ruled that Judge Messina didn't have jurisdiction to issue that new trial. They never got to the merits or the facts that she ruled he was wrongfully convicted in violation of his Sixth Amendment right to constitutional effective representation. They never got to any of that. They just said she didn't have jurisdiction.
0: And this is now 17 long years ago. It's it's crazy. I mean, the court heard the merits of his innocence and decided he should get a new trial. But outside of the 2915 appellate proceedings, it was ruled that the trial court didn't have jurisdiction. So Ken has just been sitting there since 2004 awaiting a miracle or a change in the law so that his case could be heard again. And that finally happened in August of 2021. A new law was passed in Missouri that allows a case to go before the trial judge outside of a 2915 15 hearing. So what that means is that if a prosecutor knows that a man is innocent, as the current prosecutor has implied in Ken's case, they're no longer jurisdictionally barred from doing something about it. Judge Messina has already ruled on this, and she's now an advisor to the current prosecutor, Jean Peters-Baker, and Baker already made use of this new law in Kevin Strickland's case in the fall of 2021, yet strangely, she is yet to act in Ken's case. It's it's mystifying and maddening at the same time. So, Cliff, what's going on with all of this now?
3: This new law, yes, it's about a
0: prosecutor's right to file a motion,
3: but it's also about a court's right to have jurisdiction to consider and hear the matter. Well, now they're given the motion court's jurisdiction, but... The prosecutor has to file it. So in our case, we've already proved everything there is with this statute. This statute lays out. That upon the filing of such a motion, the court shall have a hearing and issue a findings and facts and conclusions of law on all issues presented. That's exactly what Judge Messina did. So we've already been successful at securing a new trial for my father, but the only thing we didn't have was jurisdiction. Well, now this new law gives the court's jurisdiction, but the prosecutor has been reluctant to file it. So now that this new law is passed, I believe the next steps are for Jean to file a motion conceding jurisdiction. That's it. We don't need anything else from her but a one page motion conceding jurisdiction and allow a court there in Jackson County to get to the merits of the trial judge Edith Messina's order overturning my dad's conviction.
0: Cliff, for our audience out there listening now, is there something you'd like them to do? What can they do to help to right this horrible injustice?
3: Yes, you'd go to our website at free-kenmiddleton.com. There's a wealth of very compelling documents that support everything we spoke about today. If we said it today, rest assured you can go to our website and find it. And on the homepage right up front, there's a petition asking Jean Peters Baker to abide by her oath and follow the plain language of this new Missouri statute. It's as simple as a one-page motion conceding jurisdiction so that my dad can once again prove his innocence and come home to the family that waits him.
0: Right. We'll have that linked in the bio as well as a link to Silver Creek Entertainment. Um, I believe there's a film on the way about Ken's case, and it can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned. I can't, I, you know, I'm both dreading and really looking forward to watching it. So check that out. Click on the link in the bio and now, guys, we have a tradition here, and it's really my favorite part of the show. It's called Closing Arguments. And Closing Arguments is very simple. It works like this. I'm just going to turn my microphone off, kick back in my chair with my headphones on, you know, turn the volume up a little bit, and just listen to anything else you'd like to say, anything at all you have to say to our audience. So Cliff, why don't you go first? And Ken, we'll let you close us out.
3: I'd like to thank you for using your celebrity to bring awareness to wrongful convictions. Giving a voice to the voiceless, it's an amazing thing what you're doing. It's encouraged other celebrities like Kim Kardashian and John Grisham and Johnny Depp and, you know, a lot of others to take up the cause and stand up for justice. And and so I'd like to thank you again, Jason. And
0: now Ken, over to you.
4: Well, what I'd like to say here is that all the people that's listening I would appreciate it more than words can explain. Anything they can do, sign petitions, sign letters to Baker to get her to follow the statute, anything anybody can do to help to clear and get the same justice that Kevin Strickland got, I would appreciate it more than words can say.
0: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongful conviction on Facebook at wrongful conviction podcast and on Twitter at wrong conviction, as well as at lava for good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at it's Jason Flom. Wrongful conviction is a production of lava for good podcast in association with signal company number one.